Support for WSKG Studios is provided by Downtown Ithaca Alliance, working for the community to make Downtown Ithaca a vibrant place for all. Information about events, local businesses, and more at downtownithaca.com. And by the Finger Lakes Grassroots Festival of Music and Dance, a family-friendly summer event for all ages featuring 80 bands on four stages. Tickets and more information about grassroots in the community throughout the year at grassrootsfest.org. I'm Crystal Sorakas. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. The Thula Thula Game Reserve in South Africa is home to a large herd of elephants, made famous in the books The Elephant Whisperer and There's an Elephant in My Garden. Now, Francoise Malby Anthony has written a new book about life on the reserve and the family of elephants whose adventures have touched the hearts of so many around the world. She writes about the challenges that the reserve faced when COVID shut them down and about the ongoing fight to protect the animals of Thula Thula from poachers. Francoise joins me from her home in Zululand, South Africa. Francoise, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Crystal. Tell us about Tula Tula. Oh, well, Tula Tula is a little piece of paradise uh, in Zululand, South Africa. It's a little game reserve where it used to be a very small game reserve, uh, which was a hunting game reserve actually 25 years ago. And uh, Lawrence and I bought it. So in 1998, we actually just celebrated our 25th anniversary this month and of the existence of Tula Tula. It, uh, it was a very small game reserve, about a thousand hectares uh, uh, of uh, land, of bush, with very few animals at the beginning. And now we are going to become 5,500 hectares uh, with thousands of animals. So it's been a tremendous change in 25 years and with no hunting, of course, and uh, with wildlife roaming all over. We've got two lodges as well, a safari lodge, the Elephant Safari Lodge that we created in 2000 and a tented camp where we welcome people from all around the world uh, for eco safaris to learn about wildlife, to learn about nature, and to learn uh, all what we do uh, to protect the wildlife for future generations. Well, you were born in France, we can tell by your accent. You lived in Italy and Venezuela, London, and then you're in South Africa and dealing with elephants in your garden. Was that ever something that you'd imagined for yourself? And not definitely not. No, no, no. When I had a very nice life in Paris, and I really love Paris living there. And uh, until I met uh, my uh, future husband, uh, a South African man waiting for a taxi in London, in it was in 19, uh, what was it, in 1990, 1987, I almost forgot. It was 35 years ago. And uh, I met him, and then. Uh, and voila, that's the way, you know, 
you wait for a taxi and you end up living in South Africa. You see, that's kind of destiny, incredible destiny. But we lived in Durban for 10 years before we bought the game reserve. So I had the time to accustom myself to uh, my new country. And but then the adjustment to a game reserve, that was different. That was uh, that was pretty hard, you know, to end up in the middle, middle of the bush, um, you know, with lots of strange animals that I didn't know anything about. And uh, so it, the adjustment took me a little bit of time. Uh, but I got there, I've been there 25 years and I'm still here. So, but I fell in love. I fell in love with the, 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 the African, what we call the bush in, in, in South Africa. I think you call that jungle in, in America. And uh, so I fell in love with animals. I fell in love. I, I was not used to animals before and not even dogs. So now I've got about seven dogs, all rescues. And we've got elephants and we've got... Uh, buffaloes and we've got uh, giraffes and we've got the most beautiful wildlife and um, it says create an absolute passion I, i've discovered a new passion and this I, I wish everyone to discover a passion like this one it was really something very new to me and uh, and you know i, I survived <laughs> that's it well it sounds like you fully embraced it absolutely absolutely it's a passion which, which um, I never thought I would discover something like that. And uh, it's been, it's been a, a little bit of a tough journey, if I can say it like that, because, you know, there's something I, I think is well reproduced in my books, uh, which are all a roller coaster of emotions. And this is the way we live, actually, in, in, at Tula Tula anyway. But I mean, I think it's quite well described the moment of, joy and the moment of uh, you know sadness as well as, uh, when we've got a special uh, animal who who dies for example like my matriarch or like a baby elephant or like uh, a baby rhino you know these are very uh, difficult moments that we have to get through but it's part you know it, it, it's part of our life and uh, at the same time we've got the birth of a new baby rhino or the birth of a new baby elephant which uh, makes it all worth it. Your husband, uh, Lawrence Anthony, he wrote a book called The Elephant Whisperer. And I think this is kind of how he, he became widely known throughout the world when he rescued a group of elephants that otherwise would have been killed. What was that initial conversation like between you and Lawrence when he's like, I want to bring this herd of elephants here? Well, we had that phone call, actually. It was interesting because the lady who organized it all from uh, an elephant organization from Johannesburg, she just told us uh, those elephants, uh, they're kind of problem elephants. And I think with Lawrence, we, we didn't really pay much attention to the world problem. And we said yes, straight away. We were, uh, we were overjoyed to have a herd of elephants and to save them as well from a sure death. That was something we wanted to do without thinking of the consequences without uh, much thinking of anything we just thought we're going to make it work and uh, so it was always a very positive attitude we had three weeks to organize their arrival which means to build an enclosure uh, with electrified um, fence um, to put the elephants when they first arrived to accustom themselves to their new environment 
and it was uh, three weeks was a challenge, a serious challenge. And but we made it, and they arrived. But the, the problem elephant showed very quickly their true colors after 24 hours when they escaped, and we had to run around all over Zululand to try to find our herd of seven elephants, which was quite funny because if you think, how can you lose seven elephants? It's quite funny because they're quite big animals. I mean, it took us a week to find them again. And then um, when we found them, we put them back into the, that boma, which, which is that uh, enclosure. And uh, we put them back and then uh, we were told if they escape again, they will be shot. Uh, uh, they, they will be shot dead. So that's when Lawrence decided to stay uh, around that boma, that enclosure, 24 hours a day, until we could release them into the wild and into the game reserve. And that's when he created that amazing relationship with the matriarch, with Nana, and uh, which is now that has become a legendary relationship. And uh, this is because the matriarch, you know, she communicates to the other members of the family and telling her that this is a good place. We're not going to escape again. So this is what happened. This is what created that that incredible um, uh, special love story between Lawrence and the matriarch and the whole herd. And the whole herd, now, by the way, there were seven at that time. Now they are 28. Oh, so... Wow. We've got a beautiful herd of very happy elephants, lots of teenagers, and and um, well, so the, 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 that's the reason why we had to increase the land, uh, because two years ago, as I put in my last book, two years ago, uh, I was told that if I did not increase the land uh, urgently, uh, because we have too many elephants, and the land we had, what was about four thousand hectares, was not sufficient, and they would have to be. Uh, removed from Tula Tula. And that was unthinkable because it's like having a family. You can't remove children or just like that from, from parents. I mean, it just doesn't work like that. Mm. So uh, I was put under a lot of pressure at that time. And uh, some, you know, sometimes extraordinary things happen. And within three weeks, and you know, I think pressure, pressure, adversity, I think these uh, are the best teachers and the uh, within three weeks I was able to um, secure two and a half thousand hectares of extra land so that was quite a phenomenal uh, achievement if you think about it so I, I always think that you know adversity challenges open the doors to new opportunities and you know, it's it's a necessity for growth and evolution. I'm a, I'm a firm believer of, of this, and that's kind of a, 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 a secret to survival, let's say. And it's been one of the things that I loved reading about in both of your books was the relationship that you have with not only your staff, but the communities around you, where many people uh, they all seem to be very dedicated to nurturing these animals, to giving them a home. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we all, this is wonderful about my staff, we all share uh, the same passion and the same vision. If you see that uh, in my first book, and even in my kitchen, it was my chef from the Safari Lodge, which is a lovely young lady who came to knock at my door at 
eight o'clock at night in the middle there's a baby elephant in the garden looks lost a little baby elephant it was seven days old and uh, if you think that she, it's thanks to her actually that that baby was saved otherwise he would have fallen somewhere or he would have, he would have probably died um uh, or taken by a hyena by hyenas you know but it's, it's, it's quite dangerous the wild for a baby any kind of baby even a baby elephant which is 120 kilos so um yes we all share the same passion because we all know this is all part of our philosophy at Tula Tula you know the love of our animals you know animals all have a name uh, all our elephants have got a name our, our hippos even our hippos have got name like the parents are called Romeo and Juliet my my uh, rhinos even some of our giraffes some of our buffaloes you know some people say it's like anthropomorphism you know but you, when, when you you give human um, human uh, characteristic uh, to animals but you know when you live with animals crystal you realize how true that is uh, you know uh, elephants they they, they, they all above all elephants they share the same emotions as us you know they, they express joy uh, they express um jealousy uh, they even got a sense of humor you know i've got my some of my elephants they are just uh, such entertainers when he sees a game drive vehicle arriving suddenly there's one of them above all mabula he just loves to climb on his back feet on his back legs and he climbs to the top of the tree and just to show off, I mean, he climbs against the, 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 the tree, I mean, to try to get the further leaves at the top of the tree. It's quite extraordinary. And he loves to be taken in photo. He loves to be watched. And it was very funny because during COVID, COVID was a terrible time for us because we had no client, no guest at all. It was, the whole place was deserted. And the elephants were coming to the house. And like, and looking at me, telling me what's happening. Nobody is here to admire us or to take photos of us. You know, they've got very human reactions. Mm. If you think about it, they 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 express even depression. Um, they've got the same diseases as us so humans. So, so, you know, I think it's very important for humans to realize how much uh, all animals are sentient beings, of course, but they. I've got the same reaction as humans. I mean, I've got an example of jealousy as well with some of our uh, elephants and even my rhinos. My rhino story are hilarious because it's just like a soap opera. You know, the the the, the jealousy between the males towards the females. I mean, it's quite fun when you observe them, when you spend time with the animals. You can see uh, um, and you can feel um, exactly the, the, the way they are. Mm. It was it was interesting and kind of heartbreaking to read that, especially with that original herd of elephants and some of the animals since that uh, some of them, many of them have come from traumatic backgrounds. Um, maybe they were orphaned, their parents or their herd were taken by poachers. How do you help an animal heal from that kind of trauma? Well, you see, for the elephants, uh, it's different because the elephants have got such an amazing sense of compassion and altruism. They will help each other to 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 uh, uh, to forget uh, what happened to them before. That, uh, like E.T., for example, 
enfants terribles, when she came from that game reserve where she was going to be hunted, all her family had been hunted. She was the last elephant on that land. And uh, when she came to Tula Tula, she was extremely traumatized. But uh, uh, my matriarch, Frankie, took her under her uh, wing, if I can say it like that, and took care of her, made her feel at home. And this is what you learn from elephants, that amazing sense of compassion. And, and, and uh, you know, there's an amazing story about, uh, someone told me about an elephant who had lost two thirds of its trunk. You know, an elephant without a trunk cannot feed himself anymore. And that elephant was with the other elephants around the water hole and where they were all drinking water and he couldn't drink that elephant. The elephants took turns one by one, filling up their trunk with water and putting the, their trunk into his mouth so that he could drink. And same with the food. You see that, that, that spirit of, of uh, uh, the, the, the bonding between uh, elephants above all is quite spectacular, it's quite unique. But you got it as well with rhinos. You know, one of my female rhinos lost her daughter uh, because of a virus, she died. Within 24 hours, she was, she was dead. That was Mona. And uh, her daughter, Lisa, died. Uh, my other female rhino, Tombi, decided to drop everything and to be with her, with Mona, all the time, showing her around the game reserve, took her for walks all around. So you see that uh, compassion, you see it in animals as well. And it's quite heart. Uh, warming to see that. And I, I think that as, as humans, we've got so much to learn from that. Do you think that people should understand better how harmful it is to take an elephant away from its family structure because that family oh. is so important to it? I mean, that's deadly. That's absolutely deadly because the elephants will become completely depressed. It's not good to understand. Uh, it's like taking a child, uh, uh, you know, away from, from the mother. I mean, it's exactly the same. And they are totally distressed. And an elephant in distress, is, it's visible. It's, it's completely, uh, um, it's, it's more than traumatized. I mean, you know, and there's some of them, they can die from distress and from depression and from uh, taking them away, of course. And this, you know, it did happen in, in some game reserve when, when um, baby elephants were taken from their mother and used in, Elephant rights safaris trained to be of use to humans, let's say, for commercial purpose, let's say. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, so that's just an example, but it's unthinkable. For me, it was unthinkable that they took away eight of my elephants uh, from, from their family. It should have destroyed the whole family structure uh, because uh, even if you take, you know, it, 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 for me, it was unthinkable. It was unthinkable. That's why I was prepared to do anything I could to get more land for them and to make sure that I would be able to keep uh, the whole herd together, 28 of them, because they're all one family at the end of the day. I would like to talk a little bit about poaching. Is that a problem on the reserve? It is a problem. It's a problem in everywhere. In all the game reserves, it's a problem. And uh, it's something that we have to fight. Uh, you see, there are two ways to fight poaching. There's uh, to educate, um, educate 
to stop the demand. Uh, I'm talking about the poaching of rhinos. Uh, that it's taking a long time because obviously the countries of the Far East, uh, the people using rhino horn for whatever reason, uh, are not aware that it has no medicinal medicinal uh, value whatsoever. It's just keratin, just like your hair or your nails. And I think to educate them, you know, when it's ancient traditions like this, it's very difficult to make people look at the reality. And I think a lot of people as well in China or Vietnam don't know that uh, rhinos have got to be murdered for, so that they can, uh, the poachers can take their horns. You see, they don't know that. So there's a whole lot of education needs to be done at that level. I know that my first book is being translated, has been translated to Chinese. It came out in China in March because there's a big part of it, which is about the rhino poaching. But I think the other way to fight uh, poaching is having a top-notch security uh, and anti-poaching team like I have. We have got drones, we've got cameras all around the game reserve. We've got vehicles, several vehicles patrolling day and night. I've got my game rangers following my, my, my rhinos the whole day from six o'clock in the morning and six o'clock at night. Then my anti-poaching seem takes over during the night. So, I mean, the measures we have to take here uh, and the cost of such, uh, uh, such actions is phenomenal. Uh, you know, even at our level, because we know we, we, we're quite big. I mean, five and a half thousand hectares is starting to be quite a large place. And we just have to double it now because we've increased the size of our game reserve to such an extent that we have to increase the, the, the anti-poaching team as well. So... All this, but we can't do without it. You see, even during COVID, when we had no guests at all, we had no income, we had to carry on protecting our wildlife. We had no choice. You wrote about the need to dehorn the rhinos to, you know, because I guess without the horn, the poachers aren't as interested. Is it hard to have to go through that process with them? It's always hard. It's always emotional. We do it every 14 months. And even though I've done, we've done it since 2016, even though every 14 months we have to do it, it's the most emotional moment because it it's just looks so unfair. You know, we've got to dart those animals from a helicopter. That's already very traumatizing for them. They don't understand those big noisy birds on top of them. And then suddenly they get, a, uh, you know, they get to dart on their bum and then they fall and then they wake up uh, disorientated. It doesn't uh, um, change them. Uh, it, it doesn't make like us cutting our, our hair or our nails. It doesn't really make a difference, but it doesn't matter. The problem of dehorning de is that if they are in a game reserve with lions or with very dangerous game, they can't really defend themselves with a horn is their weapon in a way but uh, we had no choice because if you dehorn the rhino normally it's of it becomes of no interest to the poacher normally i say but still there's still there's still some uh, some rhinos get poached even with a little bit of horn a little five or six centimeters of horn they still still kill the rhino for that little bit of horn which is uh it can be can be unthinkable, but it happens, unfortunately. 
it's, I mean, when you, when you look at the price per gram or per kilo, I mean, of, of rhino horn in the Far East of the black market, I mean, it's absolutely, it's between 60 and $90,000 a kilo. So it's something extremely uh, valuable. So we have to protect them. This is what we do at Tula Tula. Um, and it's an absolute priority. I know that we're almost out of time, but I want to I want to know, what do you think is the most important lesson that you've learned in your years at Tula Tula? Oh, la, I've learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what I've learned. I've learned, um, you know, I've learned a lot about my 25 years at Tula Tula. I've, I've learned about the reality and challenges of running a game reserve and the huge responsibility it is. The bovel since Lawrence passed away 11 years ago, you know, when it all ended up on my shoulders, I, I, I realized how, how tough it is. And so, you know, it, it's all about survival. I've learned about survival and I've learned about uh, the ability to adapt to a new situation. I've learned... Um, I've learned to, I've learned about trying to make a difference. It's a, it's a life of significance as well. And I've learned that to, to, to do what I'm doing and what we, we are doing at Tula Tula with my team, it's, uh, it's really um, to make the world a better place for animals, but for humans as well, humans and animals. So the world must be balanced, you see. And uh, I think this is what I've learned. And I've learned about uh, falling in love with animals as well and falling in love and understanding nature much better. You know, I was a city girl. I didn't like the rain. And I understand we have to have the rain. We have to have water. Water is life. I've learned. And I think it's all about education. Education is key to conservation, I say. And I think we... People have lived so disconnected from the natural world. We are all part of nature and we need to educate humans and teach them about respect, respect of nature, respect of animals. And uh, we must learn to cohabitate and coexist. And uh, respect is a big word as well. Uh, I think if people learn about that, they would understand much better what we're trying to do. Um, just trying to make a difference, to make a better place. Francois, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure, Crystal, and wishing you a beautiful day. Francois Malby Anthony's new book, The Elephants of Tula Tula, is available now. You can find out more about the conservation work done at Tula Tula and about the animals who live there by visiting our website at wskg.org. Coming up next week, I talk with Connie Willis, one of the grand masters of science fiction. Her new book is The Road to Roswell. If you like funny stories about alien abductions, westerns, men in black, Elvis, and more, you're going to like this book. Listen next week for my conversation with Connie Willis. Off the Page is made possible by donations from listeners just like you. Thank you so much if you've already given. And if you'd like to send a few dollars our way to help support the program, visit wskg.org and click on the Donate button. And if you're listening from somewhere outside of the WSKG listening area, 
make sure you're donating to your own public radio station as well. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. Mm-hmm.